Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we continue on with this uh, great chapter on unity. Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, verses 13 through 16. In our study of Paul's letters to the Ephesians so far, we've seen that there are two parts to the letter, two essential parts. The first part, the first three chapters, are heavy into theology. The second three chapters are heavy into application. We've seen in the application section that we can summarize it by saying something like this. Those for whom God has done much should live in a way that is consistent with what God has done for them. Those for whom God has done, done much, and that's, that's me. I assume that you would fall in that category as well. If not, we need to talk. But those for whom God has done much should live in a way that is consistent with what God has done for us. Now, that's a pretty high standard because what God has done for us is way up here. And most of us are not living way up here. Most of us are living way down here. But it's our responsibility to live consistently with what he's done for us. And Paul will make that point in this second half of Ephesians. In the last portion of the letter, Paul is going to make the point that we should walk, which means which means we should have a lifestyle, if you prefer. We should walk in unity. That's the section that we're in now. We'll finish that one tonight. That's chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Later, he'll say we should walk in holiness, and that's chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. He'll, he'll go on to say that as chapter 5 begins, that we should walk in love, and that's chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 5, verses four, 7 through 14 says we should walk in light. And then finally, we should walk in wisdom. That's chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. And a couple of weeks ago, we considered the concept that there were, there were seven elements of unity that bind us together. Paul says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And we concluded that lesson by, by saying that we, we have a strong bond of unity in Jesus Christ. There's a bond of commonality that unites us. While Christians come in all sizes, shapes, colors, personalities, there's all a number of variety of believers. We have been given a responsibility by our Savior, and that's the key idea. It's our Master that gave us this responsibility. This is not one of the people in the body of Christ that's come up with this. This is the master that has told us that we should function in unity. That is our responsibility. Whether we like it or not, that's not an option. We can say, well, I don't necessarily like those people. And Jesus Christ says, I don't care. They're people for whom I have also died. That's a kind of a strong phrase, isn't it? Those for whom Christ also has died, and we have a responsibility, regardless of their skin color or their personality. We have a responsibility to live in unity with them. But last week we saw, especially in, in the verses four through twelve, but really in, in, in I'm sorry, in seven through twelve, but in seven through sixteen as well, we see that that Paul, while calling us to unity, does not in, does not call us to a unity that excludes the exercise of diverse gifts. So he's calling us to unity, but there's diversity within that unity. A diversity of gifts builds up the body of Christ, providing it with maturity and stability necessary for us to become that perfect man that we'll talk about tonight, and so that we might be protected against the sinister activities of those who would attempt to lead us astray. Now, we studied last week 
a passage that's, that I told you was admittedly very difficult, a passage about which there's very little consensus. And I know some of you, and I'm really happy that you did it, went home and you checked your, your study Bibles and some commentaries that you had and, and, and called back or wrote back and said, yeah, I could see what you're talking about. There really doesn't seem to be a consensus there. But one thing that, regardless of the consensus with regard to some of the minute details of the passage that we studied last night, we did see, oh, regardless of the lack of consensus with regard to that, we did see that there was some consensus with regard to a message that Paul is, is bringing out. And that's there's one who gives, there's one in vic- who in victory gives gifts to whom he chooses. There is one who in victory gives gifts to whom he chooses. As we saw last week, the referent in that quotation that Paul does here from Psalm 68 the initial referent was most likely Moses, although we can't prove that. That was the understanding of the ancient Jewish scholars, that it was most likely Moses. But in Ephesians, Paul is clearly ascribing this action to Christ, the action of giving gifts. Now, we also saw in a previous study that that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul ascribes the giving of spiritual gifts to the Holy Spirit. So is that some sort of contradiction? No, not at all. There is a unity. There's a functional unity between Son and Spirit that excludes that from being any form of contradiction. But basically what we saw was something like this from this passage that is a quotation of Psalm 68. Christ descends to earth. The reference to the lower parts of the earth most likely being a reference to the earth itself. He wins the victory at the cross. He then ascends to heaven and then subsequently sends down the Holy Spirit as his representative. So when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the Holy Spirit giving gifts, that's not a contradiction to what he says in Ephesians with regard to Christ giving gifts. Because there's a functional unity there and Christ sent the Holy Spirit as another helper. If you'll recall John chapter 16, he sends another helper. So it's a functional unity. There is no contradiction there at all. Again, the the pattern, Christ descends to earth, he wins the victory at the cross, he ascends to heaven, and then the Spirit descends back down to earth. That is the, the best explanation I can give you in the limited time that we had last week and this week of what's happening. Now, the more important part of that comes in verse 11, and he gave as, he gave some as apostles some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as, te- uh, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And this is where we ended up last week. And we saw that what Paul lists here are gifts, not offices per se. Now, it's true that there's an office of apostleship, but there's also a gift of apostleship. And then there was an, there was a, there's an office of elder, but there's a gift of pastoring and teaching. So these are office, there's a gift, not offices. Apostleship, prophet, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. We did briefly, and I hope that you, you caught it, because of the structure of the Greek sentence, it's understood by most that the, pa- the pastors and teachers are two separate aspects of giftedness that's given to one individual. Now, there are teachers who are not pastors. But there are not any pastors who aren't teachers, at least not if they legitimately fulfill that function. Again, there are teachers who are not pastors. We see that a lot. We see that a lot. We see that in Sunday schools. We see it in private or in small group Bible studies. We see it in the, at the seminary level. 
there, there are people who are teachers who are not pastors. Romans 12 tells us that there is a gift of teaching. But there are no, there's no one who's a legitimate pastor that's not also a teacher. Now, let me, let me say that again, and I, I, I chose my words carefully. There's no one who's a legitimate pastor who's not also a teacher. In the pastoral epistles, Paul makes it very clear that elders must be apt to teach. They must be able to teach. We've also seen when we've studied the pastoral epistles that the terms elder, bishop, and pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So there are those that are teachers and not pastors, and no pastors and not teachers. Now this is a gift of, of, the, of, the, of the four. This is the gift that will probably be at the forefront of our discussion tonight, although we need to remember what Paul said in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, which Paul says to each one a measure of the Spirit was given for the common good, here he tells us again that each one of us is gifted. And each one of us is gifted for a special purpose. And that purpose is not for the edification of ourselves. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. Now there are three essentials then that we summarized last week as we finished. Three essentials with regard to this idea of giving of spiritual gifts. And first, and this is one I want to note well, and I want to I want you to burn it in your into your nervous system, the nervous system, or your soul, if you prefer. We should note well that no one's spiritual gift, no one's spiritual gift, was given to them strictly for their own benefit. I always get in trouble when I do this, but that's why I don't like the Dove Awards, the music awards for contemporary Christian music. That's why I don't like that. It's, it reminds me too much of the Academy Awards. It's too much about that person. Now listen, they're either ministering or they're entertaining. Pick a side. But when you give awards for something like that, it, it does seem to diminish the ministry part to me. Now, that's, again, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm used to getting in trouble. <laughs> as soon as they start giving awards for the best prayer of the week or the best encourager of the week, or, heaven forbid, the best sermon of the week, or the best classroom lecture of the week. As soon as we have those kind of awards, then I'll, then I'll be happy to sit down and watch the Dove Awards. But you see, spiritual giftedness was not given to any individual to enrich that individual. It was given to minister to someone else. And we need to, we need to recognize that. And no one spiritual gift is any more important than, than any other. There are spiritual gifts that are more visible than others. But I, don't, I just don't believe in giving awards to one particular area of spiritual giftedness, if that is indeed what it is. So, giftedness is for the benefit of the body of Christ as a whole. It's not for one's personal enrichment. That's why I don't clap for prayers. And that's why at our church, I don't, I don't really like it that much when we clap for the music. Because everyone is ministering that day. You know, turn around and clap for the usher that just showed you for your seat. They're ministering too. Or the person who provided the flowers or the refreshments out front. Or the person who just gave a word of encouragement to someone else. You know, how, that'd be kind of silly, though, wouldn't it? You know, if you saw someone over in one corner that just said, hey, listen, I've been praying for you. And you go up and say, hey, wait, I go. Let's give a standing. Hey. No, it would be silly. I'm just saying we need to have some sort of consistency here. Some sort of normalcy. Some sort of humility. All these gifts are important. And they're all important for the building up of the body of Christ. Not for any particular individual. That's the first thing that we close with. closed with last week. The second thing that we closed with was that these diverse gifts, there's unity within the body, but there's diversity of gifts. These diverse gifts were given to believers 
to equip other believers to do the work of the ministry. A healthy church is not one in which, for example, the pastor does all the work. That's an unhealthy church. It's very unhealthy. Some of you have heard this before. Others haven't. A few years ago, my, my good friend and, and colleague of Dr. Johnson, Elliot Johnson, no relation, uh, both of brilliant people, but Elliot Johnson was here and he was our speaker. Now, most of you, if you if you used to come on Sunday mornings when we met here, will know that our parking lot has some real deep areas where rain accumulates. And we needed every single parking place plus a lot more. We had people parking on the streets and literally in the yard over here next door. They would let us do that. And uh, that morning when Dr. Johnson was going to be here, it happened to rain the night before, and there were puddles in the parking lot that took up a, a good six spaces, and we needed to push that water out. So we had, had two brooms that the church had bought, and David, my son, and I got, it, got here early, and we, we were in the process of moving the water off of the places in the parking lot. And Dr. Johnson drove up, I think, with his son. He drove him there that morning, and, and he got out of the car and, and didn't say much about it. And, and I got up to introduce him as we began the service. I, I looked down, and my pants were wet, probably from the, the shoes up to almost calf level because the water had sprayed around. Didn't think anything of it. Nobody really could see it from the, the congregation out there. So, but when I, was, when I was driving back with him either to the airport or lunch, I've forgotten exactly what it was, he looked at me and said, I noticed you were sweeping the parking lot when, when I drove up. And I said, yeah. I said, why, so why were you doing that? And I said, well, because there's the, you know, the low spots near the place. He said, no, 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 that's, that's not why we're doing that. He said, I said, why were you doing that? And I said, well, why wouldn't I? You know, I get here first and no problem. He said, well, I'll tell you one reason why you ought not to, because you got up there and introduced me and did the prayer and introduced the songs, and your pants were wet from the knees down. He said, that didn't look, didn't look really, really good, but I'm more concerned. He said, there's nobody else in your congregation. There's no other able-bodied person in your congregation that would have been more than happy to sweep that parking lot for me. I said, oh, no, there's a bunch of guys. He said, then why are you taking the opportunity away from them when you already have plenty of things that you can do? I said, well, I'm not too good to do that. He said, that's not the point. Yeah, okay, you've made that point. You're not too good to sweep the parking lot. But you took that away from someone who may not have had anything to do that particular Sunday morning that would have loved to serve in that way. And he made a, he made a point to me. He said, and that's, he made this point. He said, if you do all that, you're not, this is not a healthy church. If you restrict the opportunities that you give for other people to serve. And I haven't forgotten that lesson. When, when Elliot Johnson speaks, like, yeah, but people listen, right? <laughs> and so, so I listen to him, and, and I hopefully have learned. So we, our, our folks, at least as, as, as someone who is a pastor slash teacher or a pastor that includes teaching, I, I don't usually call myself a pastor teacher, although it wouldn't be legitimate to do that. I just assume that everybody realizes if you're a pastor, you also have that responsibility. But it's, uh, it's the responsibility of, of those who pastor teachers to equip others so that they can do the work of the ministry. And I'm not talking about just sweeping the parking lot. That's just an example that I can give you. But we're to train you so that you can go out and do it. You know, if, if we give the gospel, say, on a Sunday morning, and maybe there's 150, 150 to 180 adults there on any particular Sunday morning, and there may be four or five visitors there, and we were able to give the gospel on a Sunday morning to four or five visitors. That's one thing, and that's wonderful, and that's great, and we certainly would never want to minimize that. But what if, what if you, were, you would be taught to give the gospel yourself? 
that you were so familiar with the gospel, so comfortable with it, that you could talk to your neighbor. You see, then, then it multiplies exponentially. Instead of just four or five people getting the gospel on a Sunday morning, pastor teaches you how to give the gospel, what the gospel is, and then you can go out and almost sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We could go out and minister to people where they are. You know, sometimes unbelievers will come to church, but we can't count on that. You know where most unbelievers are? Out there. Or bars. <laughs> yeah, they're in the bars too. <laughs> not on Sunday morning, hopefully. <laughs> no, they're out there. So yeah, I'm just kidding with you. But um, that's, that's the second thing we ended up with last year. And then finally, the end game was that we, we do this for the building up of the body of Christ. So the purpose is the equipping of the saints, and the intended result was the building up of the body of Christ. And we said in that sense, in that sense, while, the fun, while a bit of the focus may be on the, these four gifts that are mentioned, particularly in this aspect of the church age, the, the gift of pastoring and teaching, we're all involved in this building up of the body of Christ, every single one of us. And in this sense, we're all construction workers. So you want to make it simple? We're all part of building up a building, and Christ is the one that's doing it, but each of us has our part to play as well. Now, in verse 13, Paul says, going on, we had to break off in mid-sentence last time. I didn't like having to do that, but for the sake of time, we were forced to. Let me begin with the sentence again in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. These gifts are to function until we all attain the unity of faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God. That's a long time. In other words, these gifts are to function perpetually. At least uh, two of the four gifts were to function perpetually, but the idea of spiritual gifts is something that will, that will function perpetually until the church age comes to an end. Now, this is not a promise. When, when, Paul, says, when Paul says in verse 13, until we all attain, this, this isn't a promise that all will attain the unity of faith or all will attain a full knowledge of the Son of God, at least not in this particular point in time in history. There will be that in eternity, but this verse is not exclusive of only what's going to happen in the future. Paul's calling us to an action now. So this is not a promise that we will attain the unity of faith or that all of us will attain a full knowledge of the Son of God. It does not promise that all will grow to Christian maturity. It doesn't promise that. But it does mean that we have the responsibility to function for the common good, within the sphere of our giftedness until Christ calls us home, until the church age ends with the rapture. So it's not a promise that all of us are going to attain maturity. In fact, the reality is that many people have died over the course of the church age that were anything but mature in their faith. Now, there is a promise for maturity at a later time. There's a promise for a full knowledge of the Son of God in eternity, but this verse is not exclusive to that. This is something that we are to strive for at the present time. So the intended result of spiritual gifts is, as we've seen before, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up 
the body of Christ. Verse 13 is just elaborating on that goal. So until we all attain the unity of faith or the knowledge, epinosis, some of you have heard that term before, sometimes translated full knowledge, but, but not necessarily. The unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God or the full knowledge of the Son of God. What about this term, unity of faith? We've, we've spoken before how the term faith can have different meanings. It can have the meaning of, of um, placing one's trust in, say, for example, Jesus Christ. And earlier in the epistle, I think that it held that particular meaning. Here, I'm not so sure it does that. I think here it means the content, the content of faith, that which is believed, rather than the exercise of saving faith. Until we all attain this unity of absolute truth, the unity of the scriptures, the content of faith, the content in, in context, the content of this faith is a discerning, perceptive knowledge of the Son of God. A discerning, perceptive knowledge of the Son of God. This is this Greek term, epinosis. And some people talk about a, a full knowledge or a fuller knowledge. But if you really break it down, the terms gnosis and epinosis are, are very, very similar. In Greek, it's it's difficult. They're used interchangeably sometimes. It's difficult to split them down the middle, with quite the ease that some some try to do. But one one thing that we can take away from the term epinosis is a discerning and perceptive knowledge. In other words, it's not speaking about just a superficial knowledge of Jesus Christ. If one just has a superficial knowledge of Jesus Christ, they are not a mature individual. The, the Christian who knows little of Jesus Christ is not a mature Christian. I want to say that again because it goes against the grain in some circles, but especially in modern circles. The, the Christian who knows little of Christ is not a mature Christian, at least not by Paul's definition. No matter how many good works, no matter how many benevolent deeds that individual does, they may be a, a, a good person, whatever that means. I'm talking about as a believer. But they're not a mature person in Christ if they don't know, if they don't have a, a significant, discerning, and perceptive knowledge about Jesus Christ. Now, again, that goes against the grain in, in 21st century Christian circles. Not, not in the circles you and I run in, but in the, in the broad sweep of Christianity. The whole idea of knowledge is almost frowned upon in some circles. Now, that's abhorrent to me. And perhaps to you as well. And, and granted, there, there have been some people who so sought knowledge that they excluded the application of that knowledge to daily living. We're not, we're not advocating that in any way. But knowledge, knowledge is a part of the deal. So if we want to call ourselves mature, we need to know something of Christ. I can't help say that without also reminding you. In James's letter, Paul, uh, James rather says, just because you know doesn't mean you're mature. But I can guarantee you, if you don't know, you're not mature. I can guarantee you that. But you need not only to know, but you also need to do something with what you know. But you got to know before you can do. And too many in Christianity today are trying to do without knowing. And that's it's extremely unfortunate. And that's the responsibility. That's the fault of the clergy. That's the fault of elder boards. That's the fault of deacon boards. That's the fault of church leadership. I don't blame those in the pew for that, not, not entirely, because those who are in the pulpit should know better 
than to simply give those in the pew what they think that they want. Listen, we all want to be liked. I want you to like me. (laughs) But I want Jesus Christ to be satisfied with me more. At the the end of the day, I would would sure, I like it when people are appreciative, but I'm, I'm more intent on satisfying what my Savior has given me to do and so that's, that's why I do what I do the way I do it. And that's why I assume that you're here tonight on this rainy Wednesday night. Now, the, the, the text goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge or this discerning perceptive knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness in Christ. Now, in some way, the, in some ways, these these two phrases are related together. I, I think the one actually describes the other. Uh, to a mature man, and then to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ is really describing what a, a mature man is, a mature person in the faith. The term "man" here is an interesting twist. Most of the time, we would see the term "anthropos," where we get anthropology from. But that's not the term here. The term here is aner. And that's, that's actually the word for male. To, to the mature man in, in that masculine sense. Now, it doesn't mean that only males are going to become mature or that, we sh- or that women should act like men or anything like that. Actually, this phrase, the mature man, is, is probably in context not restricted to the individual. Watch, because we, we typically we think of maturity as far as I'm mature, you're mature, she's mature. I'm speaking hypothetically. I wouldn't, I would not be so presumptuous. But Paul actually has something more on his mind. He doesn't just have the maturity of the individual in mind. Remember what he's been speaking about from, really since the book began, but especially from chapter four. Verse 1 on, he's speaking about the building up of the body of Christ. So this term, a mature man, is not restricted to the individual, although the individual, it's true of the individual, but in context, it really is a reference to the body of Christ as a whole. That's what Paul wants to mature. He wants the, the body of Christ to mature. If we took this down to the local church level, I would love to see... Pine Valley Bible Church mature as a church. Now, listen, I understand that in order for that to happen, individuals within that church are going to have to mature. But you see, there's there's kind of this dual goal. Not only we, this is not just an individualistic thing. That will actually be arguing against what Paul's been arguing about the whole time, this whole unity thing. You know, there's not supposed to be any any competition in Christianity. Sometimes it ends up being. I know there's competition when, when it comes to financial issues and jobs and teaching and positions and things like that. But in the body of Christ, you're not going to lose if someone else becomes mature. Okay? We're not going to lose if everybody here becomes mature and everybody here is a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. That's a good thing. That wouldn't be a bad thing. We should be striving for that. I should want you to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being blessed incredibly and here, well done at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know if we're going to have a view of all that. 
I have my opinion. My, my opinion is I think we're going to be watching from somewhat of a distance. I, I think there's a certain amount of privacy at the judgment seat of Christ, and I think that maybe there's some sort of there's some sort of observation, but I'm not sure it's going to interrupt the intimacy of that conversation. But when we see our friends and family walk away from that judge, judgment seat of Christ, and you know, like you know, like people do at a graduation, they kind of give you the the thumbs up, you know. And, and someone goes, hey, listen, he said something good to me. We all say, yes, I'm so glad about that. And we will in heaven because we're going to want someone else to succeed. I only say this because I, I've heard over the years, not, not lately, but I've heard over the years almost a, a sense in which people might think it was good for them if they succeed and somebody else didn't. Like Christ only had a certain number of crowns, let's say. It's going only got a certain number of space and estates and mountain views. And if, if she gets it, then I might not get one, you know. It doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Heaven's a wonderful place, and there are plenty of, of uh, there are plenty of well dones to go around. We should want them for all of us, not just for some. So these two things, these two phrases, to a mature man and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, both these phrases refer to fullness, completeness, or maturity. And again, while the individuals while that is true of the individual, what is in view here is most likely the maturity of the entire body. And you see, that's how it fits into the spiritual gifts. Whatever your giftedness is, whatever it may be, you should be utilizing that so that the individual that you're ministering to will be encouraged and motivated and edified, and not just that individual, but the entirety of the body of Christ. This is, this is so important. Now, I realize that we can only account for ourselves in this area. I can't make decisions for you, nor can you make them for me. I know, I know sometimes I'd like to make decisions for you, and I know sometimes you'd like to make decisions for me, but we just can't do that. But our desire should be, under the umbrella of unity, that all become mature. Now, verses 14 through 16. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That word also could mean teaching. Don't just see the word doctrine and, and think it means maybe what you've grown up with it meaning. Here it just means teaching. Carried about by every wind of, I'm going to translate it, teaching, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, verse 16 is a summary. I'd like to spend just a moment on verses 14 and 15. This imagery here is, is striking to me. As a result, this could either be a result or purpose, but the whole idea behind the function of spiritual gifts is to build up the body of Christ so that we don't end up in a very negative, in a very dangerous situation. Without a discerning, perceptive knowledge of the Son of God, we will be like children in a sense, helpless against the storms of life, 
and we will be particularly susceptible to false teaching. And until we attain a certain level of, level of unity of the faith, unity of that content of the faith, and a discerning, perceptive knowledge of the Son of God, we are in a danger zone. And we will be susceptible to false teaching. And once again, I think Paul is stressing purpose here. He, he wants us to get the point. He's, he's trying to make it over 16 verses now. The purpose of all these spiritual gifts that each one of us has, all the gifts now in, in agreed in context, perhaps the gift of pastoring and teaching might be in the forefront, but all the gifts are in the, in the general vicinity here. The purpose of these gifts is that they, that individuals might grow so that they don't languish in spiritual immaturity. Because spiritual immaturity is a very dangerous place to be. It's, my, it's in my experience, at least with my own kids, that children are fairly easy to fool. And hopefully, if you're a loving, benevolent parent, you never fool them in a, a way that would be negative. But they're fairly easy to fool. It can be fun if you're doing it in love. But it can also be dangerous if there's some predator out there, and there are predators, that fool children for an appropriate purpose. Spiritual children live in the same dangerous world as do spiritual adults. Satan doesn't cut anybody any slack because of their age spiritually. Now, God will cut you some slack. God is not going to tempt you or test you beyond that which you are able to handle. But Satan's not bound by that promise. And it's a dangerous world whether you're spiritually mature or spiritually immature. And I hate to say it, but there are people out there who don't necessarily have your best interest in mind. And it was true in Paul's day as well. And that's why he says, as a result, we're no longer children, assuming you have achieved this level of unity of the faith and an epinosis understanding of Jesus Christ. As a result, or for this purpose that we no longer be children, that could be understood both ways, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching. I think there are people out there that are doing Satan's work. Now, some of them are doing it intentionally. And I think many of them, if not most of them, are doing it unintentionally. But there are people out there that are presenting dangerous teaching. Teaching that's going to get you off of the track, get your mind off of Christ and onto something else, whether it's some sort of prosperity gospel that never mentions sin. That's dangerous teaching. My friends, I don't care how many people attend, how many people tune in, that's dangerous teaching. And I'm not in, I'm not in, in any way implying that, that, that anyone who would teach that is doing it intentionally or intentionally serving Satan. But unintentionally, that's what they're doing. They're part of the storm. We need to be careful here. A significant amount of my time is spent refuting false teaching. Now, I'm happy to do that. That's what my position is in the body of Christ. It's my job to keep this local church pointed in the right direction. 
with what I, as, as best as I can, with sound, competent, biblical exegesis and exposition. To keep us becoming distracted from an honest pursuit of scriptural truth. I've been up front with everybody for the last 17 years. I don't have any other agenda. That is what I feel like I'm here for. I believe my primary responsibility, not my only responsibility, but my primary responsibility is to present competent exposition that keeps us all pointed in the right direction. Now, there are other things, too, encouragement and, and prayer, and all those things as well. But that's my primary responsibility. And believe me, there, there is a lot of chasing after these every wind that bounces people from here to there. And I don't want to say what some of the winds are that have bounced people because I don't want to be offensive to anybody. I want you to ask me the questions. I'm more than happy to answer them. But sometimes, sometimes I learn a lot about the congregation as a whole from the questions that I receive. Because rather than being within some sort of some sphere of the truth, I say, where in the world did you hear that? Where did you, where did you, who told you that? Well, I heard it on the, read it on the internet, or I heard it on the te television program. Listen, just because it's on the internet, just because it's in print, doesn't make it true. In fact, I'll give it 50-50 in some cases. But don't believe everything you read. And I'm not saying I'm the only one you can believe either. Heaven forbid. But I'm saying I, that is my job is to try to keep everybody moving in the right direction. There's a great temptation in Christianity. And apparently it's not just for today. Apparently it was back in Paul's day too. I know it was in Paul's day. He talks about it too much. But there's a great temptation for believers, not unbelievers, for believers to chase after things that tickle our ears but provide no basis for spiritual growth. So it's the, it's the responsibility of those in leadership of the church, particularly the one who is the pastor, but all those who are in leadership, I believe, to keep that church focused on what matters. I hope I don't have to tell you, but storms are coming. Personal storms are coming, if they're not already here in your life. But storms are coming, personal storms are coming, and storms are coming on a national level as well. In fact, in my view, one would have to be totally and completely disengaged with the culture not to know that we are in the middle of a national tropical storm. I'm not talking about this one that's down in South Texas. I'm talking about, some, uh, using that as a metaphor, we are in the middle of a national tropical storm. And in my view, the barometric pressure in the midst of this national tropic, tropical storm is dropping. And those of you that know hurricanes know that when the pressure drops, the winds increase, and the tropical storm goes from becoming a tropical storm to a hurricane. And again, I think you would have to be completely disengaged from the culture, not to understand that culturally, nationally, if you will, we are at least in the middle of a tropical storm, maybe about to become in the middle of a hurricane. It's going to strengthen unless the Lord intervenes. It's going to strengthen in the next few months or years. Now, are you ready for that? Are you ready? I hope so. Now, in order to get ready, if, if there was a hurricane that was, if this storm changed overnight and we got up in the morning, we found out it was off Galveston instead of off McAllen going into Mexico, 
there'll be a lot of people in Houston wouldn't be ready for the storm. They'd be rushing down to the store to try to get some supplies. The store's the light's going to be out the door. The store's going to be out of something. It's too late. There is a point in time in which it is too late to begin to prepare. We need to prepare our souls now for the coming storm. In contrast to those who function in trickery, as this text says, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That word scheming is where we get the English word method from. Deceitful or scheming method. Satan is a, is a good methodologist. He can, he can use the techniques of the day in a way that Christians don't seem to have been able to do. Filmmakers, for example. Satan has some brilliant people making films. Now, I believe that the Christian community is beginning to catch up. Satan has some brilliant people writing op-ed pieces. And I do believe that the Christian community is beginning to catch up. But there are some people out there that are crafty and using trickery. So, in contrast to those people, Pastors who faithfully teach the Word of God, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, bring stability and unity to the congregation. As opposed to this storm, or being unable to weather the storm, and I, and I chose this carefully, if you can't see in the back, that ship in this storm has been just beat to death. And so many believers are just like that, whether it's a personal storm. Now, my friends, I know a lot of you are in personal storms right now. I, I know that. And maybe you feel like that ship. Maybe you feel like you've just been beat death. I hope not. I, I hope this, despite, you know, that ship's still still sailing. It hadn't sunk. And I hope because of the maturity you have in Christ, because of the full knowledge of the discerning knowledge of the Son of God, you're going to be able to weather the storm. But it's the pastor's job to teach so that the congregation can do just that. The attention of the congregation must be ever focused upon the head of the body, that's Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we're able to grow up in all aspects of him, into him who is the head, even Christ. You see, Paul seems to be drawing a contrast between those who, who mean you harm, either intentionally or unintentionally because of their relationship with Satan's purpose, and the methods that they use, the craftiness and the scheming, with the one who means you no harm, the one who is serving the Lord, who is simply speaking the truth in love. The truth is what's powerful. And if you just don't get in the way, some people say, well, I have no ability to, to give the gospel. Yes, you do. Just make sure you give the gospel, you, you present to people what the Bible says, and do it in love. You don't have to have a fancy method. Now, there are methods out there, and some of them are really good techniques. You don't have to have that. But what people can see through in a heartbeat is hypocrisy. And what they're drawn to is love. People do generally not respond, people generally do not respond to the truth that is spoken in anger. I don't generally. And you don't either. But people will be drawn like a magnet to the truth that's spoken in love. And so that's the contrast between these Deceitful schemers and the one who speaks the truth in love. The attention of the congregation must be consistently pointed to the head so that we are 
So we should grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Again, we come back to Christ. I hope you know me well enough. And those that know me the best know that in no way would I claim perfection or have a right to do so. And that's just the way it is. But I, I don't claim to be the message. I claim to, to be a messenger that's speaking the message. And I truly do want to speak the truth to you in love. And it's the truth that's powerful, not the message. That's all I am. Those who fail to teach the truth in love leave their flocks susceptible to terrible, terrible shipwrecks. And as such, they end up being part of the problem. And if you doubt that, there's a devotional reading over the next several nights. You can't do it in one night. Take a look at, at Jeremiah and see who Jeremiah tends to blame for most of the problems that are going on in Israel. It's the priesthood. There are a lot of things going on in the United States, in uh, Europe, the Middle East, and, and sometimes we talk about those, but not very often. Uh, I know some of you know this. A few weeks ago, I received a, a, a rather caustic letter, and sometimes that happens, and it doesn't really bother me that much, but, but uh, a rather caustic letter by someone who is not a member of our church, but attends our church doesn't attend anymore, but the letter was calling me a, a coward and a lot of other things for not speaking about the specifics of the way. And believe me, I'm, I'm fully aware of the specifics of the, of the ways. I am not totally disengaged from the culture. I, I spend a significant amount of time each day looking at what's happening culturally. I know what's happening with regards to the Supreme Court nomination. Right now, I, I know about that person. I know what her views are. I know what her lifestyle is like. Uh, I, I was over in Ukraine when the Drudge Report had said the, the first thing other than a hurricane that the Drudge Report ever said about our city. You know what it was? One of the headlines? Houston elects first openly gay mayor. Largest city to elect first openly gay mayor. Large in Texas. I'm, I'm aware of all these things. I know that. I know I know the statistics. I know the things that are, have, or at least have some understanding of the things that are happening monetarily and and in, in, in different areas, but but my job is is not to keep you informed with regard to the culture. That's something you should be doing. You should be engaged in the culture. My job is to help you get through this storm by telling you something of Jesus Christ and of His Word. So, as far as that particular fellow goes, he hadn't come back. He, he, he called me a coward in a letter. He hadn't come and done it personally yet. But I'd love to have the talk. And, I, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not doing unjust because I think he, he misunderstands the role of the pastor. And it's not because we want to lose our 501c3, whatever it is, status. I care less about that. Churches don't have to be 501c3 corporations anyway. Churches are tax-exempt by law. So my job is to teach you the truth so that you can weather these particular storms. Now, now verse 16 summarizes, I think, the entirety of the chapter when it says, from whom the whole body being, he's talking about Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by 
that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So it, it summarizes the whole process. Individuals all need to do their part, functioning in the sphere, in the sphere of their spiritual gifts, each part contributing to the health of the whole. And then in the end, the body of Christ is that part. 